0: I'm going to invite you to turn your Bibles to Matthew, or I'm sorry, to Isaiah chapter 53. We'll go into, to uh, Isaiah 53 first and then we'll go to uh, Matthew chapter 8 after that. I want you to, to um, listen with me as I read this 53rd chapter of Isaiah. Everybody agrees that this is a messianic chapter. In other words, what that means is the Jews understood, the um, translators understood, commentators understood that the things that are described in Isaiah 53 relate to the Messiah. They relate to that which the Son of God would come to the earth and perform. It brings information, revelation to us about that which is to be done, the price that is to be paid, and the results that follow. Isaiah 53 verse 1, it says, Who has believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? Now, folks, most of the time we look at verse 1 as just kind of filler, introductory statements. But there's a a great truth that you need to recognize about this. Right off the bat, first scripture, first verse in the Messianic chapter, the most complete revelation and identification of the work that Jesus would do and the results that it would bring. It starts off saying, who's going to see the arm of the Lord revealed? Who's going to see the power of God in their lives? That's what the arm of the Lord is referencing it's talking about the power of God. It's talking about the delivering power of God. And it says, to whom is the arm of the Lord going to be revealed? To whom will the power of God be made manifest in them and for them and on their behalf? Who is the, this or who, what people are going to receive the power of God and the results thereof? The ones that believe the report. Notice it tells us first and foremost that faith is necessary to receive and walk in the power of God. Who has believed our report and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? Only those that believe the report. Here's the report. For he, speaking of Jesus, shall grow up before him, before God, as a tender plant and as a root out out of dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire of him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. The word sorrows literally means grief, and the word grief literally means sickness. He says he's a man of grief and acquainted with sickness. Now, how was he acquainted with sickness? We think about his earthly ministry and um, uh, all the people that he ministered to The individual cases of sickness and disease that were healed in the four gospels the multitudes which were uh, ministered to and healed in many cases we don't know how many people that would be but when the bible talks about about multitudes plural it makes me think that Jesus ministered to hundreds maybe thousands of people while he was here on the earth and so he's certainly acquainted with sickness and disease by virtue of the fact that he healed the sick while he was here but is that really what it's talking about? Is it really trying to get across to us that he's going to be acquainted with sickness and disease solely because he ministers healing? I don't think so. I think it's talking about acquainted with griefs and a man of sorrows, a man of sickness. I think it's talking about the price, the substitutionary work that Jesus would do for us relative to the shedding of his blood. He is despised and rejected of men. A man of sorrows, griefs, and acquainted with sickness. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Verse 4. Surely. Only time the word surely is used in this Messianic chapter has reference, or is referenced, to sickness and disease and healing thereof. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Again, griefs is uh, the word... Pains, I'm sorry, the word griefs is sickness, and the word sorrows is griefs or pains. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Now let's take this apart a little bit, because... It identifies verse 4 as Jesus doing a specific, the Messiah doing a specific work of healing for the physical body. But then in verse 5, it tells us the summary of everything that Jesus would do for us when the promise was made. What we know that he has accomplished for us since the work has been completed. So notice what it says. It says he was wounded for our transgressions. How was he wounded for our transgressions? We know generally the the story of what happened to Jesus related to and surrounding the cross. But this is talking about specific things. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The word "bruise" literally means the mark of a blow. Dr. T.J. McCrossin in his book, Bodily Healing and the Atonement, identified as a Hebrew scholar, he identified that the words that were used here and in other places in the old testament the hebrew words that were used had very specific meaning he says for example the only thing that would satisfy the use of this word regarding sickness and disease the mark of the blow the only thing that would qualify for that is if jesus had less than one sixteenth of an inch between any two marks on his back. The point is very simply this, the skin on his back, the meat of his flesh was basically ripped off of him. It wasn't like you see in cowboy movies when somebody gets bull whipped or something like that. Not literal stripes, but a mass of destroyed flesh. Otherwise, and Dr. McCrossing goes to great lengths to explain Otherwise, there were other words that would have been more appropriate to use. If it literally meant that Jesus had marks or stripes on his back rather than his back being beaten and bloodied to the point where you couldn't distinguish one mark from another, then there are words, Hebrew words, that, were, that would specifically fit that. But the Hebrew words that the Holy Ghost gives us and brings revelation to us about the work of Jesus means that his back, his body, was one big Bruise, one big wound that he suffered at the hands of the Romans. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him and with his stripes we are healed. Every one of those things that the Bible says... Jesus did for us or took care of for us or was our substitute in providing for us every one of those things resulted in blood when Jesus was nailed to the cross that was certainly a wound that he took on in both of his hands what's the significance of the wound it brought forth blood to be shed when Jesus was beaten in Pilate's court and took upon him sickness and paid the price of the penalty for sickness and disease, all sickness and all disease. You can just imagine what a bloody mess that was. And it was all about the shedding of blood. God's the one that said the life is in the blood. So if Jesus is going to offer his life as a worthy sacrifice, a holy sacrifice for us, there had to be the shedding of blood. And it was not some dainty thing where he just bled a little bit. Jesus offered his blood, his precious blood, holy blood, sinless blood for you and me as our substitute. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord, speaking of God, the Father, has laid on him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. Now, folks, when the Bible talks about he laid on him the the iniquity of us all, these are Levitical terms. In verse 4, where it says, he bore our sicknesses and carried our pains. Those words, born and carried, are words that refer to the day of atonement sacrifice. It was the literal bearing away of the sins of Israel upon the goats. Now, the sacrifice was twofold. There were two things that were sacrificed, only one whose blood was shed. But Israel was commanded, and the high priests were the ones that carried this out. Israel was commanded to take two goats or bulls. One to be offered as the sacrifice, one to shed blood, provide for the shedding of blood. And the other is the scapegoat. Now, the scapegoat's the one that m- not many people really understand or talk about much, I guess. We understand the other sacrifice. We understand the blood sacrifice where the animal was examined. And if it was worthy, if it was without spot or blemish, then the high priest would go through a very specific, very tedious ritual, a certain way for the blood to be offered and spilt certain things specific things that the high priest was required to do with the blood but just as important as the sacrifice that was killed was the scapegoat now the scapegoat was such a uh, it was uh, the circumstances surrounding the scapegoat was such that the high priest was commanded to put his hands on the head of this goat and to pronounce all the evil all the sins Every sin he could think of and there were, uh, as far as the the high priests were concerned, in the Torah, it gives us a very specific and complete list of everything that he had to pronounce. Every evil that he had to pronounce on the, the scapegoat. And then that scapegoat and the symbolism is that when he laid hands, the high priest, the representative of the people to God, as he laid his hands on the scapegoat, Then all these sins of Israel were transferred upon the goat the sins the people of Israel were not no longer guilty of the sins they committed for the last year anytime during that last year because the scapegoat carried them away and so it was taken out into the wilderness a strong man was to take it out in the wilderness and the judgment of God would fall upon it out there now the high priest, or one of the priests—not the high priest, but one of the priests—that that was given charge over the scapegoat, they weren't allowed to stick around and see what happened. So many times they would take them out into the wilderness and stake them to the ground. You can very easily understand that if it's tied up to a tree or a pole or something like that, that it becomes easy prey for wild animals and such. But nobody was ever able or allowed to stay out there and view it. It was something specifically in God's purview for judgment to fall out there on the scapegoat. Well, Jesus, if he's going to fulfill the sacrifice that the Day of Atonement ritual symbolized, he's got to pay both parts. He's got to be the lamb that was slain, and he's also got to be the scapegoat. Otherwise, it's just a half plan of redemption, and God doesn't do anything halfway. So when it talks about he bore our iniquities and that God, the Lord, has laid on him the iniquity of us all, it's saying, here's the substitutionary work. Jesus died so you don't have to. Jesus shed his blood so that you don't have to. Jesus shed his blood so that you are not responsible for paying for your own sins. He did that for us. Now, folks, anything that Jesus did as a substitute for us, means we don't have to take part of or have anything to do with from this point forward. Jesus did not pay the price for sin, uh, sin, iniquities, and transgressions. He didn't pay the price for you and I to struggle with sin for the rest of our lives. Not a lot of Christians do. But part of the revelation that the Holy Ghost led us into through the Apostle Paul is the understanding that there's no condemnation out of those that are in Christ Jesus. We may make mistakes. We may stumble and fall, but Jesus paid the price once and for all. He entered into the heavenly holy of holies. Hebrews chapter nine tells us and offered his own blood, precious blood, holy blood, sinless blood for your sakes and mine. So that no matter what we do, no matter what stumbling or what falling or what temptation we give into, Jesus still paid the price for us to be righteous. And none of those activities, none of the works of the flesh that Paul identifies in Galatians chapter 5, none of those things are sufficient to take us out of the righteousness of God under any circumstances. So God laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. He was taken from prison. And from judgment and who shall declare his generation for he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people was he stricken. Here's a scapegoat reference. He was cut off from the land of the living. That was the terminology that the Old Testament used that God used and gave to Moses. That the high priest that was the basis and the foundation for the high priest's actions toward the scapegoat. He was to be cut, the scapegoat was to be cut off from the land of the living. That's why they took him into the wilderness. That's why nobody could stick around and see what happened. He was cut off from the land of the living. Now for Jesus, that has another meaning. He was cut off from the land of the living. Do you remember the stories that Jesus told in Matthew chapter 16 about the rich man and Lazarus that both died? Lazarus goes to Abraham's bosom. The rich man Finds himself in hell. When the Bible says that the scapegoat was to be cut off from the land of the living, and that's a part of the work of the Messiah that he would fulfill, that of necessity, by definition, means Jesus didn't go to Abraham's bosom. Abraham's bosom was a place of life, not just existence, but life. It was called paradise. Jesus called it paradise. We know from the story in Matthew chapter 16, that the rich man saw Lazarus comforted while he was in torment from the, of the flame. So if Jesus just went to Abraham's bosom, that means he would have died the death of a righteous man because Abraham's bosom was filled and populated with everybody that was looking for the promise that God made to Abraham, the promise of a son, the promise of a Messiah. And they were waiting there. They were captive. They couldn't leave. They couldn't go into the presence of God until after Jesus shed his blood and made a a sacrifice or an offering of his own blood to cleanse you and I, to cleanse all of mankind from sin. So where it says that the Messiah was cut off from the land of the living, that by definition has to mean that he went to hell. He died the death of the unrighteous, not the death of the righteous. I thought of it this way many years ago and I haven't been able to improve on it yet. I know some people have a hard time believing that Jesus went to hell. And their reasoning, their thought is if Jesus went to hell, then that means he stopped or ceased being the son of God. Well, it doesn't mean that he ceased being the son of God, but it does mean that he forfeited the life of God that he had here on the earth as a substitute for you and me. I've always asked myself the question, If it wasn't for Jesus, what death would I be required to die? Would I be required to die the death of the righteous man or the death of the unrighteous? And all of us would be bound to die the death of the unrighteous. But thank God Jesus did it for us. We don't have to because he did. And that's what this means. He laid on him, God laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people was he stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. This word death is plural. Look it up. Don't take my word for it. Look it up in any Hebrew concordance. You'll find out that the word that's used there is a plural of the word death. So he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his deaths. He died physically and spiritually. Because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. It's talking about more shed blood. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. He, God, hath put him, Jesus, to grief. Most translations, literal translations, translate this verse, he has made him sick. Now that doesn't mean Jesus had cancer on the cross. Or any other sickness or disease. It means that the price that he paid, the shedding of his blood for your sakes and for mine was sufficient to pay the price for sickness. In the same way that God laid on him the iniquity of us all, God laid on Jesus sickness and disease for us all. Now this again is the Messianic chapter. This is what Israel was looking for. Throughout their whole history for the Messiah to do. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him, Jesus. He, God, has put Jesus to grief. Or he has laid sickness upon him. He's made him sick, literally. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. Now notice that. When when he makes his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. When he makes his soul an offering for sin, he made his back an offering his body, his flesh, an offering for sickness and disease. The fulfillment of his death and the shedding of his blood made an offering for his soul. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Now I want you to turn with me over to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8 tells us in the beginning of Jesus' ministry, there are some wonderful things that are identified. One is, early in the chapter, it says there's a leper that comes to Jesus, and out of the multitudes of the people that he ministered to, this is the only record that we have of somebody in this position. Now, the leper's position is such That we would say it was a common thought or is a common thought in our day. But apparently it wasn't in Jesus' day. We'll start in verse 1. When he was come down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him. I don't know what great multitudes are. I don't know what kind of numbers to imagine from that. But it's got to be a bunch of people, right? Hundreds, maybe thousands. We know that when he multiplied the loaves and the fishes, there were 5,000 people in that crowd. And the Bible just calls that a multitude. Not great and not multitudes plural. So what could this be? Could this be 15,000 people maybe? I don't know. I don't know even what to guess at. But it's a lot of people. When he was come down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him. And behold, there came a leper and worshipped him saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. If you will, you can make me clean. I want you to notice that, folks. The only person out of multitudes, great multitudes, that ever questioned Jesus on his willingness to heal. He came face to face with the will of God. He said, Master, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus put forth his hand and touched him. Mark's account says that he immediately stretched forth his hand. Luke says that he stretched forth his hand immediately because of the compassion that he had on it. And Jesus put forth his hand and touched him saying, I will be thou clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. Jesus didn't hesitate. He didn't have to pray and find out if healing was for this guy. He didn't inquire of him how good a Jew he was how he lived his life was he a keeper of the law was he a breaker of the law none of that became an issue Jesus unequivocally when challenged when asked the only time in his three years of ministry that we have record of the one time where he's asked about his willingness to heal Jesus is moved with compassion and immediately stretched forth his hand and says I will now folks if Jesus willed to heal this guy and doesn't will to heal you, then we've got pages to tear out of the Bible. We have to tear out the page that says, God's no respecter of persons. We've got to tear out the Bible that says, God never changes. We've got some foundational truths, eternal truths to do away with, to take the position, for anybody to take the position That God doesn't will for everybody to be healed. We've got some work to do on the Bible. Thank God we don't though. Because it's always unequivocally God's will. To heal every sickness and every disease. Now this is Jesus ministering on the earth. Before the shedding of his blood. For us it's better than it was for them. Because Jesus was showing through his healing ministry on the earth what the fulfillment of the Messianic chapter, Isaiah 53, would look like. But for us, we already know what it looks like because it's been accomplished. It's been done. So Jesus immediately moved with compassion, stretched forth his hand, and said, I will be thou clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. Jesus then gives him instructions to show himself to the priest according to the law of Moses and so forth. Then in verse 5, Jesus was entered into Capernaum. There came unto him a centurion beseeching him and saying, Lord, my servant lieth at home sick of the palsy, grievously tormented. And Jesus said, I will come and heal him. Same I will. Then the centurion answered and said, Lord, I'm not worthy that you should come under my roof, but speak the word only and my servant shall be healed. For I am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this man, go, and he goes, and to another come, and he comes. And to my servant I say, do this, and he doeth it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said unto them that followed, Verily I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. And I say unto you that many shall come from the east and the west, talking about the Gentiles, and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the children of the kingdom, talking about the Jews, shall be cast out into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus said unto the centurion, go your way, and as you have believed, so be it done unto thee. And his, self same, and his servant was healed in the selfsame hour. Now, do you remember where we started in Isaiah 53, verse 1? Who hath believed our report, and to whom is the hand of the arm of the Lord revealed? To whom is the healing power of God revealed? This is a perfect example of how healing works. This man believed based on his own experience with authority, based on the things that he's heard about Jesus. He recognizes that just as he, the centurion, has authority over his servants and the men under his command, the Roman soldiers under his command, he recognizes that Jesus has authority over sickness and disease. And it makes perfect sense because there's no way Jesus could minister healing if he didn't have it authority over sickness and disease Jesus would have been like the modern-day church going from place to place praying that God would do something but instead Jesus knew what his authority was and because of the things that the centurion had heard about Jesus he knew what Jesus authority was too he understood the process he understood the process He understood that faith was the means whereby God's blessing and God's power became his or would become his. So he goes home and his servant's fine. Skip down with me now to verse 16. Tells us about Peter's mother-in-law getting healed. Notice in verse 16 it says, When the evening was come, they brought unto him Jesus Many that were possessed with devils, and he cast out the spirits with his word, and healed all that were sick. Notice what it says, folks. It says he healed all that were sick. He healed all that were sick. Now, why did he heal everybody that was sick? Notice verse 17. That it might be fulfilled, or so that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, himself took our infirmities and bare our sicknesses. A couple of things that's important for you to see. One is, Matthew eight seventeen is a New Testament Commentary on Isaiah 53 four and five. It's a holy Ghost commentary. These were words that were inspired by the Holy Ghost to be written down by Matthew. And notice the fulfilling of Isaiah 53. Let me re- or I'll quote them to you again. read them if you need to. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sicknesses. Surely he has borne our pains and carried our sickness. Surely. He has borne, there's that Levitical term, the scapegoat, day of atonement, verbiage. Surely he has borne our pains and carried our sicknesses. Notice what it says here in Matthew 8, 16 and 17. It says, Jesus healed them all that it might be fulfilled. In other words, the healing of everybody in this instance and in this crowd. Whether it was a big disease or a little disease, no matter what was wrong with somebody, whether it was great or small, the healing of everybody was the only way to accurately fulfill what Isaiah 53, 4 and 5 tells us that the Messiah would do for us. Now folks, it could have been if God was this way, it could have been that healing is available to some. And most of the church world takes that position it seems to me. We know that God can heal But the question is, will God heal? Well, we just saw in Matthew chapter 1, the only guy in Jesus' ministry, three years of ministry here on the earth, that we have record of as asking about the will of God, Jesus instantly moved toward him and said, I will. So if God had wanted to set it up so that healing was available to some and not to all, I'm sure there was some way, some creative way he could have made that the case. But instead he gives us his word and tells us, That according to the word of God, which is never changing and eternal, that the healing of everybody was required to fulfill what Isaiah 53, 4 said Jesus would do for us. Can you see that? He healed them all to fulfill what Isaiah 53, 4 and 5 says. People will go to Isaiah 53, 5 and they'll say, well, yeah, Jesus was wounded for our transgressions. Bruce for our iniquities, we accept that because that's sin. Every Christian believes Jesus died for our sins. But when it says the chastisement of our peace was upon him, that word peace is the word shalom, Hebrew word shalom. It means well-being in every area. It means prosperity. It means happiness. It means abundance. It means anything and everything in life that's good. Anything and everything in life that's good. And then the last phrase of Isaiah 53, five says, and with his stripes, again, the bloody mass of flesh that's left on his back and with his stripes, we are healed. We are healed. Now, who's weak? If we're going to be consistent in verse five, Isaiah 53, verse five, it says he was wounded for our transgressions. Who's the hour that he's talking about? Them and us. Is anybody left out of the hour that Jesus was wounded for our transgressions? He was bruised for our iniquities. Who's that hour mean? Is that not all of mankind? Is there anybody in the human race, past, present, or future, that was or could be Left out of what Jesus did. In paying the price for sin. Any way it could be included. Any way that somebody could not be included in that. No. The Bible speaks very specifically. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace. Our well being. Financial as well as everything else that we need in life. Everything else that is good in this life. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes. We are healed. So if we're going to be consistent, which I know a lot of people aren't, but if we're going to be consistent, we've got to say that the same all-inclusive term used concerning sin uh, sin and iniquity, transgressions and iniquity, if that includes all of mankind, then the healing that was provided to us by Jesus taking stripes on his back, that has to be for all of mankind too. And that's exactly what Matthew 8, 17 says. It's almost as if, folks, it's almost as if the Holy Ghost knew that there would be arguments about his healing for everybody. So he gives us a verse of Scripture solely, specifically, that identifies what Isaiah 53, 5 means and who is a candidate for the healing power of God. Thank God for his wisdom. Now that doesn't mean everybody's going to accept it. And certainly not everybody does. But you can't change it. Without altering God's word. So when the evening was come. They brought unto him. Many that were possessed with devils. And he cast out the spirits with his word. And healed all that were sick. That it might be fulfilled. Which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet. Saying himself took our infirmities. And bearer. Our sicknesses. Now, I want you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. First Corinthians chapter 6. Here's a verse of Scripture, a passage of Scripture that I want you to see. He's talking to the Corinthians. Paul's talking to the Corinthians by the Holy Ghost. And he's encouraging them to let the life of God, the righteousness of God that came to them through the new birth, cause of Jesus' sacrifice. He's trying to talk to them about letting it dominate in their lives. Corinth was a very licentious city, very cosmopolitan place. Anything that you wanted access to was there in Corinth. There were an abundance of temples. Many, if not most of these temples included, included as a part of the worship of these gods or idols or whatever. Sexual interaction with the high priestesses. And so they were very used to. It's a commonplace thing. That they would go to church and have sex with the high priestess. And somehow or another that was supposed to be. A sacrifice. Or expressing belief in the gods. For that particular temple. So Paul is trying to encourage the Corinthians. Now that you're born again come out of all those things. Just because you were taught from the time that you were young that this is the way that it goes, you know better now because Jesus lives in your heart. So notice in verse 19, 1 Corinthians 6, 19, what? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which you have of God and you are not your own? For you are bought with a price. Notice that phrase, you are bought with a price. Now folks, again, most of the modern day church accepts that we're bought with a price from sin. But notice what Paul said. For you are bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. The Bible says your body is just as much God, belongs just as much to God as it as your spirit does. The Bible says that your body was bought with the same price as your spirit. The same price that covered the, and paid the, the same price Blood that covered the payment for sin covered the payment for your body. Now, when we understand Isaiah 53, that makes sense. It's a New Testament confirmation that just as free as our spirits are and should be from sin and iniquity, our bodies should be and are free from sickness and disease. Folks, here's another thought. If Jesus didn't pay a price for our bodies, how can there legitimately, justly, be a redemption for our bodies? We know that the Bible says that when Jesus comes back, the dead in Christ shall rise first, and that we which remain and are alive here on the earth will be caught up with him in the air. We shall be changed in a moment of time, in the twinkling of an eye. Paul writes, Paul writes, further on in the, to the Corinthians how can God redeem your body if a price wasn't paid for it he couldn't make you righteous unless there was a price paid for that he couldn't make your spirit new unless Jesus' blood covered that and the same scriptures that say that Jesus paid the price for your spirit to be born again your spirit to be recreated says that your body was purchased in exactly the same way. Can you see that? We believe in the rapture. We believe that Jesus is coming back for the church. We believe that when he does come back, just as Paul said, we shall be changed in the twinkling of an eye. We'll receive our redeemed bodies. That's impossible if Jesus didn't pay a price for it with his own blood. But clearly he did. And clearly Paul expects them to recognize that truth we're bought with a price same price that bought our spirits out of spiritual death bought our bodies out of sickness and disease I'm gonna start reading in Ezekiel chapter 36 here's another messianic section where God's telling him what was what would befall the children of Israel and what would result from Jesus' sacrifice. Beginning in verse 25, Ezekiel 36, 25, he said, Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you, and you shall be clean from all of your filthiness and from all of your idols will I cleanse you. The Bible says that God washes us with the water of the word. You remember at the Last Supper where Jesus washed the disciples' feet? That was a symbolic fulfillment about God cleansing us so that he can make his home in us. And remember, Peter balked at it. Remember, Peter said, Lord, I ought to be washing your feet. You can't do this. And Jesus said, if I don't do it, you don't have any part in me. And then so Peter gets in line and says, well, then wash me from head to toe. This is a fulfillment of the sprinkling of clean water. The Bible says that we're born again by the incorruptible seed of the word. This is the cleansing actions. Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you and you shall be clean from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Will I cleanse you? Notice he's talking about eternal life. He's talking about the escape from spiritual death. A new heart also will I give you. And what's he mean a new heart? Does he mean the organ that pumps blood in the middle of our chest? No, he says a new spirit will I put within you. The heart's talking about the spirit. So when we're born again, made new creatures in Christ Jesus, it's not a refurbishing. It's not a, um, a healing of some type for our spirits. He recreates our spirit. A new heart also will I give you and a new spirit will I put within you. I will take away the stony heart, the unbelieving heart out of your flesh, in other words, and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you shall keep my judgments and do them. Now I want you to notice that he's talking about what we understand. They probably didn't understand it in their day, in Ezekiel's day. But we understand what he's talking about because we've got the Pauline revelations. We understand about God making Jesus sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. We understand that. We know that. That should be a a foundation for us to live our lives off of. They didn't have any such concept. You remember in John chapter 3 where Nicodemus, one of the Pharisees, comes to Jesus by night under the cover of darkness, and he says, Master, we know you've got to be from God because of the miracles you're doing. And Jesus says, you must be born again. He's saying the new birth, being born again, is the access to the supernatural things they witnessed in Jesus' life and ministry. But Nicodemus didn't get it. He was a ruler of the Jews, and he didn't get it. He said, how can a man be born again the second time? Can he enter his mother's womb twice or again and then be born the second time? And Jesus is talking about a spiritual rebirth, not a physical rebirth. But in the Old Testament where it talks about what Jesus would do here in Ezekiel chapter 36, it goes further to tell us what that produces. Not just the Spirit of God on the inside of us. And don't get me wrong, if that was all that was involved All that uh, redemption, the redemptive plan of God uh, included, it's a great deal. But it was a forever and all-encompassing redemption that he provided for us. So let's see what it says next. Verse 28, and you shall dwell in the land that I gave your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. He can't be talking about just the promised land. Because a new heart and a new spirit being placed in them well, it couldn't be available for them. It was only available for those after Jesus made the sacrifice. But he's telling them that this new birth, this place where they come into the family of God and God lives in them and he's a, their God and they are his people. It's all, in, all encompassing. It's all inclusive. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God I will also save you from your uncleanness and I will call for the corn and will increase it and lay no famine upon you. Notice that even in the Old Testament, even in Ezekiel, the Bible talks about what else is available to us and the blessings that are available to, to the people, of Ab- uh, children of Abraham. And remember Paul said, if you be Christ, then are you Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. It also includes physical provision, material provision and I will multiply the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field that you shall receive no more reproach or famine among the heathen then shall remember you remember your own evil ways and your doings that were not good and shall loathe yourselves in your own sight for your iniquities and for your abominations not for your sakes do I this saith the lord be it known unto you be ashamed and confounded for your own ways o house of israel Thus saith the Lord God In the day that I shall have cleansed you From all your iniquities I will also cause you to dwell in the cities And in the wastes And the wastes shall be builded. He's talking about more That comes along with the new birth And being in the family of God Than just forgiveness of sins And the desolate land shall be tilled Whereas it lay desolate In the sight of all that passed by And they shall say This land that was desolate Has become like the garden of Eden That's the way God expects us to live on the earth The Old Testament refers to it in one place. In Deuteronomy it refers to it in one place as days of heaven upon the earth. Days of heaven upon the earth. God calls it here the Garden of Eden. The places that were desolate, the places that were untenable when you were trying to do things on your own. When you come into the family of God, God makes it happen for you because that's part of his plan of redemption. And they shall say this land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden and the waste and desolate and ruined cities will become fenced and are inhabited. Then the heathen that are left round about, round about you shall know that I, the Lord, has built the ruined places and plant that was, that, that was desolate. The Lord has spoken it. I, the Lord, have spoken it, and I will do it. Thus saith the Lord God, I will yet for this be inquired of by the house of Israel. To do it for them, I will increase them with men like a flock, As the holy flock, as the flock of Jerusalem in her solemn feast, so shall the waste cities be filled with flocks of men, and they shall know that I am the Lord. God's not just satisfied with the new birth and then leaving you on your own. He wants to provide for you in any and every way. Look with me to Mark chapter 4. We'll close with this. Mark chapter 4 Jesus talks about the parable of the sower in the word he explains that there are four types of ground only one type of ground produces fruit there's the stony ground where the devil comes immediately and takes away the, the, uh, the word that was sown in their hearts there's thorny ground which chokes out the word and there's good ground I left one of them out I'm not sure which one I left out but there's good ground but even good ground produces varying degrees of fruit some 30, some 60, and some 100 fold the wayside is the one I missed the wayside is where Satan comes and takes the word away from their hearts or out of their hearts and Jesus talked about some things regarding this parable look with me me to Mark chapter 4 verse 10 and when he was alone they that were about him with the 12 asked of him the parable and he said unto them, notice verse 11. He said unto them, Unto you it is given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. But unto them that are without, all these things are done in parables, that seeing they may see, or see and not perceive, and hearing they may hear and not understand, lest at any time they should be converted and their sins should be forgiven him. And he said unto them, Know ye not this parable? And how then will you know All parables. Two things I want you to see here. I want to point out two things. First is he's saying that the whole of the kingdom of God works this way. Everything about the kingdom of God works according to the principles that he outlines in Mark chapter four. And furthermore, the principles that are outlined in chapter four, this parable that Jesus gave about the sower sowing the word, he says, is the key, the foundation to understanding any and every other parable. In other words, this is the basis or is supposed to be the basis for our understanding about how the kingdom of God works. There was, uh, many years ago, I don't remember exactly how many, but it was, uh, there was a time, period of time that I used to play golf, and I'd keep up with what was going on with the professional tour and those types of things. And there was a, a certain golfer, a pro golfer, that even though he had been very successful, he wanted to change his swing. Now, if any of you are golfers, you know how difficult that is. They say, and I never was a good enough golfer to to know, but they say that the key to being a good golfer, to be able to compete and play in the professional realm of golf, is to have a swing that you can repeat time after time after time. It doesn't matter what it is, you just have to be able to, to repeat it. Because if you can't develop a swing that will be the same from one, one shot to the next shot, then you never know where the ball is going to go. And if you're not a good golfer, golf can be one of the most frustrating things in the world. And the reason for that is most people, most golfers don't have the time or the effort or maybe the, in, the innate ability to develop a repeatable swing. But there was this one professional golfer and he was very successful winning a lot of tournaments. But then he went into a slump. He went several tournaments, Without winning, and people were used to him winning all the time or almost all the time. And so he was interviewed and he was asked, What happened? Did you lose your game? And he explained that he was working on changing his swing. And he said this He said, The process, I'm changing the process of my swing. He said, One of the hardest things about this is not reverting back to the old way that I used to swing. But instead, staying with the new way, even though it's not producing any results so far, he said, I'm confident. And he was working with a famous teacher, as you could well imagine, and so forth. He said, we, talked about himself and his teacher, are confident that once we ingrain the new swing, it'll bring the results and the success that we want to have. Well, it did. He changed his swing, and he became even more successful than he had been before. And the reason I bring that out is because the statement that he made about committing to the process, he said, I I know that if I commit to the process and just stay with it, stay working at it, keep working at it, he said, I know that the results will come. Well, folks, this is God's process. Planning the word in your heart, speaking the word of God in your heart is the process. And we have to hold fast. And trust the process just like the golfer had to. Because if we'll trust the process, the results will come. And that's the whole purpose of this parable that Jesus is giving to them. This is the reason that this parable was saved for us. Because if we'll stick with the process, no matter what it looks like, no matter how we feel, no matter whether we think it's working or not, the process, which in this case is given to us by God himself, will bring results so he tells him this parable of the sower sowing the word in a nutshell it comes down to hearing the word of God and protecting and watering it in your heart to bring forth results but I want you to see some other things about this fourth chapter look at with me to verse 24 he said unto them take heed what you hear here's the process Hearing the Word of God, planning the Word of God into your heart, speaking the Word of God into your own spirit. Take heed what you hear, with what measure you meet, it shall be measured to you. In other words, to what attention, place of priority you give the Word of God in your life, that's going to be equal to the results of God's Word that come to pass in your life. With what measure you meet, it shall be measured to you, and unto you that hear, shall no more be given. For to he, he that hath ears to hear, to him shall be given, and he should, that hath not ears to hear, from him shall be taken even that which he hath. Verse 26, and he said, so is the kingdom of God, as if a man should cast seed into the ground. He's talking about the process. The process for receiving from God is this thing called faith. That's why the Bible tells us in Hebrews eleven six, without faith it's impossible to please God. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is and he's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. God is at no point in time happier, more satisfied than when he can bring forth into your life that which Jesus accomplished for us. But since faith is the process, he cannot make his word come true for you or in your life unless you commit yourselves to the process. No matter what it looks like. No matter what it feels like. No matter how long it takes. It's a commitment to the process. Believing in your heart and saying with your mouth. That's what the process is. That's what this thing called faith is about. Believing God's word in your heart. And speaking or confessing with your mouth. If you'll stick with it. No matter how long it takes. If you'll stick with it. Then the results have to come. So let's finish reading what he said about it. So it's the kingdom of God as if a man should cast seed into the ground. The ground is his own spirit, his own heart. And should sleep and rise night and day. And the seed should spring and grow up. He knoweth not how. Folks, you don't have to know everything about the word. You don't have to know everything about God to get God's blessing in your life. You have to simply commit to the process. And if you will do so, if you'll hold fast to speaking God's word, there is no good thing that will be denied you. No good thing will be denied. James said it this way. James chapter 1. He talks about how the, the tongue, the place of the tongue works with taming animals. He talks about the horses. He said we put a bit in their mouth. And we're able to turn around an animal that's so much stronger than we are. But the tongue is the key. We break horses. We tame horses. By applying pressure to their tongue. In the same way. If we apply pressure, spiritual pressure to our situations. Through our tongues. James said it this way. He said, if you control your tongue, you can control your whole body. If you can control your tongue, you can control your whole body. That means, folks, that sickness and disease cannot stay if you operate according to the process. And you don't even have to know how it works. You don't even have to know this thing that I've been dealing with that the doctors call Parkinson's in the spring of 2011 sitting by myself in in my own house I was alone in the house all of a sudden my right side began to exhibit strange symptoms my right foot and my right hand began to shake and I couldn't stop it no matter what I tried to do well I spoke to it I claimed the blessing of God, I rebuked it, I did everything that I would know to do, everything that I would tell you to do. I did everything that there was to it. And I got no results. But instead, things started going worse and worse and worse. About a year after the the, uh, first symptoms showed up, I wound up going to the doctor, neurologist. And he diagnosed me with Parkinson's. And he basically said... That you can either try to handle things on your own and watch it get worse and worse. Or he could give me some medication that would dumb me down, numb my senses to such a degree that the right hand and right foot didn't respond to the signals it was getting and and the tremors and so forth. Well, I tried the medication and, and there was no quality of life there that I was willing to have. So I thanked him for his help. He really didn't give any, but... I thanked him for his help. And I went back to believing God. Now when I say went back, I don't mean I stopped believing God at any point in time. But what I mean is I just realized this is going to be something between me and the Lord. And there were things that as as it progressed, there were things that I couldn't control. And I couldn't stop. Parkinson's, as I understand it, and of course the only experience I have is Uh, my own experience but from what I understand and this certainly was the case with me famous people entertainers actors singers and so forth that are diagnosed with Parkinson's have to quit their public life because Parkinson's steals your breath along with that it steals your strength and so for several years I would believe God just to be able to speak loud enough for the sound booth sound guys to be able to pick it up with, on the microphone and they were always riding just right at the edge between um oh, what do you call it when the microphone feedback yeah they were always right on the edge of feedback and so they asked me we need you to speak up and I couldn't one of the things that I found disheartening early on is that we know innately how to talk and breathe at the same time the parkinson steals that away from you i had to focus pretty much every moment every couple of moments at least on breathing and then i had to try to fit words in between my breaths and it was very dis- difficult for me. I, maybe other people handle it better than I do. I don't know. But it was very, very difficult for me. I kept losing more and more strength. I began to pray for God just to give me enough strength to get to a service. I'd do the best I could in ministering the word, teaching the word, and then I'd go into the speaker's room and pretty much collapse because I, I just had no strength whatsoever. I had no breath whatsoever. There were other symptoms that arose, one that came along some years after, and this was after I regained my strength. This was after the thing with the breath stopped. Let me make a, a comment here, take a little side journey here. Did you see in, Matthew, in Mark chapter 4, let me make sure I get the right scripture reference verse 27 and should sleep and rise well verse 26 and he said so is the kingdom of God as if a man should cast seed into the ground and should sleep and rise night and day and the seed should spring and and grow up he knoweth not how I don't know when the breathing thing stopped I don't know when the strength thing stopped Now, I know that may sound strange because it so dominated everything I was doing at that point in time. I was having to focus, specifically focus on breathing and specifically believe God and focus on strength. But after several years, this this began in 2011, after something like five years, my strength and my breath returned. And I know there was a a specific moment in time when it came back, but I wasn't aware of it. I was going about my business, just confessing the word, believing God. And it, it started improving. It'd get better and better and better. And now I've got the same strength that I had before. I don't have to try to figure out how to breathe anymore, thank God. But these things worked and I didn't even know when. I didn't even know when. Now, there were some low points. Probably the lowest point was the time that I stopped being able to button my own collars and my own shirts. I went to my daughter and asked her for help on that. And being the sweetheart she is, she always helped. Never said anything about it. But that was a particular low point for me. Because daddies are supposed to be strong for their kids. No matter how old we are. We're supposed to be the protectors. And I had to go to my daughter to button my collars in my shirts. Now folks, the Bible says if in Proverbs 24 verse 10, it says if you're, if you're painting the day of adversities, your strength is small. Well, mine's not. My strength is not small. And that doesn't have anything to do with me other than the decision I made to put the word of God in my heart. See, anybody and everybody can be strong. And the Bible tells you how to do it. Not everybody makes the same choice to be. But there was never a moment, never a moment where I wavered. There was never a, a second that I gave in and said anything other than what the Bible says about me and my body. Not one. I knew it was going fight for my life. So here where the Bible says the whole kingdom of God works like this as if a man should plant seed in the ground that means speak the word of God in my case speak healing words into my spirit and you sleep and you rise night and day and it brings forth fruit you don't even have to know how you don't even have to know how now folks it's been seven years a little over seven years but close to seven and a half now I guess and I would love for it to have, gone, to have gone quicker. And the devil challenged me. I know what it is to be able, uh, to not be able to sleep at night because the devil's sitting on your chest challenging you about why is it not working, why is it taking so long, whatever. I know what that's like. And the other day, I, I learned something though. I learned not to let the, the questions influenced what I thought about God's word. See, the devil, who is the author of sickness and disease, will wind up telling you that it's God's fault, that it hadn't changed sooner. So he's working both sides of the street. He's the author of sickness and disease. He's the reason why Parkinson's exists in the world. And then he wants to make you to be mad or angry at God because God's not doing something that you want to be done in the time frame you want it. And there's only one road the devil travels, and that's the road into your thought life, according to, Hebrews, uh, according to Ephesians chapter 6. So about three weeks ago, maybe four, I was talking to the Lord, and it's been, a, it's been a journey for me. I can't say that I was as strong in faith when I started as I am now, because there were questions that I had to deal with along the way. I've got those all handled now. Doesn't mean I know everything, but the things I don't know, I don't care. I'm just going to stick with the word. And if there's never any display of power to change things for me or in my body, that's fine with me. I'm perfectly willing to stand in faith till Jesus comes back if it's necessary. But the other day, three or four weeks ago, I was just minding my own business, talking to God. I talked to him all day long. And I always talked to him about his word. That's one of the reasons why I see the things in the word that I see. Because I'm always talking to God about his word. I think a lot of people talk to God about what they want. Or about what trouble they're in. But success comes by speaking the word of God into your heart. And so the other day, three or four weeks ago, I just said to the Lord casually... I said, you know, this sure has taken a long time. And the Lord said this to me. He said, this is not just a matter of you receiving your healing. The fight is not for you to receive your healing. He says, you're fighting for your church. Now, I'm not sure what that means. I've got some ideas, but I don't know for sure. Don't care if I need to know, he'll tell me. But just as Brother Hagan, who I learned so much from and got so much from, just as Brother Hagan's healing opened doors in God's plan for his life and ministry, I have to think that some of the same kind of things are going to happen here. I personally believe, this is just me, it's not what the Lord said, but I personally believe that my healing is going to open the doors. For a revival or a wave of healing to sweep through our church. So that we will be able to say. Even as James said. Is any sick among you? The implication is James doesn't expect there to be. But in case there are. He gives them instruction on what to do. So is the kingdom of God. As if a man should plant seed into the ground. Speak the word of God into his own heart. And sleep and rise night and day. And the earth brings forth fruit and he doesn't even know how. Healing springs forward and you don't even have to know how. That's why Paul was so specific when he talked about holding fast the profession of your faith without wavering. For God is faithful, it promised. That's why the Bible is so specific about not being a man that wavers. Because the man that wavers can't expect to receive anything from the Lord, James said. It's a lifetime commitment to speak the word of God into your life so that God has something to bring to pass according to his plan and his purpose and his will in your life. Amen? God is the strength of my life. He has proven proven himself to be the strength of my life. He is literally the breath in my lungs. Where there was none, he made a way. I know we sing that. We sing songs about you're the breath in my lungs. And I wonder... For goodness sakes, what do the people that wrote these things have, know about this? I know what that means. I wonder if they do too. Folks, there's nothing too hard for God. There's nothing too hard for you to believe for of God. Well, let's pray. I went too long. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you.